This is a Bartificer production. Hi folks, welcome to episode 125 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host Bart Bouchotts and this is the show for February 2024. It is another solo show this month, and I want to talk to you about one of the rare cases where my career in IT overlaps with my love of photography. Specifically, I want to talk about image provenance, which is something that AI has brought to everyone's attention, and AI is driving a lot of work in, but it's something we've always needed i've always wished we could we would do it and somewhat frustratingly the tools to actually do it exist already and have existed for ages someone just needs to i say just they just need to be assembled into a system that is standardized that everyone agrees to and then actually gets used so you know there's you know and i'm happy to say that there seems to be momentum at last. I think it's silly that the momentum got started by AI, but hey, that's just the way it is. So provenance is a pretty fancy term, but all it just means is the history of a thing, right? So if you're looking at an antique or something, you're interested in who made it, when, and what happened to it at every single time between then and now. Um, you know, in terms of historical artifacts, the chain of ownership is vital because then you know whether or not you're dealing with something the British stole, or, you know, Elgin marbles, say, sorry, the Parthenon marbles, or whether you are dealing with, you know, something that was crafted by someone and legally handed down from, you know, through the family and sold a few times and whatnot. So in terms of antiques and stuff, you're trying to see, is this not a fake? And is this ethically acceptable. And the more we learn about our history, the more we realise that most of our museums are full of stolen stuff. But that's a discussion for a whole other day. Another place you hear the word provenance is for legal evidence, because if you want to use something as evidence in a courtroom, you need to have an unbroken chain of custody from the point the, the evidence was collected all the way to the point where it's displayed in the courtroom. And at no point in time can there be any doubt about which human being was responsible for that evidence and hence whether or not we can trust that the evidence hasn't been tampered with. So that's another place to see provenance used. But we are interested, of course, in it from a media point of view and very specifically a photography point of view. So what we need is a way to know everything that happens to an image from the point in time the shutter fires until we look at it on a screen. Who created it? Where? When? How? And for every single edit between that firing of the shutter and the final display of the image on a news story or social media post or whatever, we want to know which edit was made, by whom, what they did. And we'd like to be able to see little snapshots of the photo's evolution as it's gone from camera to our screen. And that is all possible. And that is what um, 
image provenance is all about. Now, I already said that I think it's silly that this is all being driven by AI because since the moment photography was invented, giant big whoppers of lies have been told with photographs, right? I've already mentioned some famous historic examples. I'm not going to go through a big draw through history. But the ones that always stick out to me are as early as the 1860s. Remember, photography was invented in 1839. So by the 1860s, you had uh, famous US Civil War photographers like Gardner, who were later caught posing the bodies to assemble a little tableau of the story Gardner wanted to tell in his journalistic photography, as opposed to reality that he claimed to have been capturing. So there we are, flat out, propaganda lies from the 1860s told through photography. Stalin, of course, famously took it up a, a, took a notch. Um, he didn't just erase his enemies from history. He had his um, people remove them from official photographs really quite effectively. He didn't need generative fill or anything like that. They were quite capable of doing it in the middle of the last century. No problem at all. So we have always needed these things, right? Lying through photography has been a thing for all this time. So I'm delighted we're making great progress towards this becoming real. I just wish we'd gotten there a lot, or gotten here and further a lot sooner. Anyway, I want to demystify how this works, because I'll give you a better understanding of the weight you should apply to it. Um, I'm going to go a little off my script here. So there are show notes at letterstalk.ie where I've written this out as an essay. It's quite a long one. It took me a lot longer to write than I thought it would. Uh, But the joys of an audio podcast is I can ad-lib a little bit around my essay. So one of my pet peeves is people not understanding what the padlock icon in the browser is really saying. It's not saying this website is safe from fraud. It's saying the website you are viewing is the website for the URL you have typed into the address bar. It is detecting adversary-in-the-middle attacks. It is detecting forged web servers where someone has managed to give your browser false information and made it look like it's coming from a real website. So you know you really are at the website your browser says you are, which is spectacularly important. That's so, so, so important. But it does not in any way tell you anything about the safety of the site. If you are at a malicious website with a padlock in the bar, it means you are securely talking to the baddies. It doesn't in any way mean that you are safe. And this is very similar to how um, provenance works. At every point in the images chain, you know who is making what claims and you have, you know, cryptography used to prove that it really is the New York Times who have put this caption on this photograph and that it really was shot by their most esteemed journalist who really was in Palestine. But that's being asserted by the New York Times. And so if you want to look at a content credential basically, sorry, an image provenance. I'm jumping the gun a little bit using the trade name. If you want to look at a piece of image, the provenance of an image, at every stage you have assertions being made and an identity making those assertions. It doesn't prove that the assertions are true. It proves that the identity says they are. So it 
proves that the New York Times really did add this caption. The caption could be a whopper of a lie, but you know who said it. So you have a basis to form your trust. Oh, I really know that this image was edited by some organisation I completely distrust. Well, then I now know to give it zero trust because the image provenance tells me I don't trust the image. On the other hand, the image provenance can say, oh, that was shot by a particular National Geographic photographer who I have great respect for and who I completely trust. Well, then great. Now the image provenance is telling you that you really trust this image. The provenance is just attaching the image and the information about it to people and organisations. Your trust is still anchored in those people and organisations. You're just able to connect the photo and the information embedded in the photo, like its caption, its keywords and so forth. You're able to connect those back to people who have to earn your trust. So just, I just really want to get it out there that this is not about saying that it is factually true that this caption is undoubtedly correct. No. What you have is proof of who is doing things and who is making claims and who is making assertions. And that allows you to place trust in the image as you see fit. Now, what's very cool that I've hinted at a few times here is that the fundamental technologies that this entire system, which is now quite far along, that entire system is built on fundamental technologies we've had for decades. Which is why I'm so cranky that this hasn't come sooner. And in fact, the whole thing rests on just two computer science concepts. Two little atoms of cryptography, which are assembled into this amazing Lego set of brilliance that is this entire uh, image provenance system I'm going to describe. And so I actually want to build it up from the bottom. I want to start with our two little pieces of cryptography. And then I want to add on top of that one little piece of hardware that has been in our phones, in our pockets for years and years now. And with those three pieces and a bunch of agreed upon formats and protocols and organizations, we have built a full system. But it all rests on just those three little technological atoms, two mathematical, one hardware. So I'm going to start with the cryptography. So this is where I get to put my computer science hat on. So many, many, many moons ago, when I was a much younger person, I lectured a course called CS230 in what was then the National University of Ireland, Maynooth, that is now Maynooth University. It was called Information Processing. And one of the topics that at the time I found the most difficult to explain to people was the kind of cryptography we're going to talk about now. Good news is I had three years of practice because I taught CS230 for three years. And since then, I've moved on to become a cybersecurity specialist. And this is now my bread and butter. So on the one hand, these things can be explained in such a way as to explode your head. But actually, fundamentally, they're quite simple concepts which are stacked together very elegantly. So I hope and pray that at this stage of my life, I have enough experience to tell you this story in a way that will make sense, regardless of how much or how little maths or anything you have. And the first thing I'm going to say is I'm not going to describe the math, right? It's based on factorizing numbers and all sorts of cool stuff. Doesn't matter. What it does is what matters. And how what it does allows us to have the provenance we want on our digital media. 
So the first of these building blocks is a new type of cryptography, which is new in the grand scheme of things because it was invented in the 1970s. So cryptography has been around for centuries, ever since anyone wanted to keep things secret from anyone else. But in the 1970s, we had a big breakthrough, which is called asymmetric encryption. And we had to give it a name, asymmetric encryption, because before it existed, there was a different kind of, well, there was just encryption. There was no need to have a different name. But when we invented asymmetric encryption, we had to retroactively fit a name to the old type of encryption, which is called symmetric encryption. So let's start there. Until the 1970s, the way encryption worked is you had something you wanted to scramble. You had a piece of math that would do the scrambling, and that piece of math needed two inputs, the thing to scramble and some sort of a secret key. And that secret key plus the input would go through the math to produce the scrambled version. And you could then send that by horse or pigeon or or whatever you like. And then the person on the other end who tried needed to read your secret message could only unscramble it if they had the same secret key. And they could then run the math backwards. So scramble data plus key through reversed math and out comes the original message. And you know that, you know, Napoleon's attacking at dawn, whatever. And the reason we call it symmetric is because the same secret key is used on the way in and the way out. So we scramble and we unscramble with the same secret key. So in the 1970s, what was invented was something that doesn't use the same key on both ends. What it does is it starts by using some interesting math that involves prime numbers and cool stuff, not to produce a secret key, but to produce a key pair, two keys. And this pair of keys are mathematically connected to each other. So they're they're sort of like a mathematical mirror image of each other. And if you scramble a piece of information you want to keep secret with key number one, key number one cannot unscramble it. The only way to unscramble it is with key number two. And if you do it the other way around, if you scramble with key two, then the only way to unscramble is with key one. That's what I mean by they're in, you know, the mirror images of each other. If you scramble with key one, you unscramble with key two and vice versa. Now, there's nothing special about key one and key two, right? The math works the same. Scramble with key one, descramble with key two, scramble with key two, descramble with key one. Fine, it's symmetrical in that way. Um, But if you want to do some really cool, fun stuff, you, when you create the key pair, you choose one and you label it forevermore as your private key. And you promise that you will do everything in your power to keep that private key a complete and utter secret. And if you do that, then you can share the other key, which you're now going to label your public key. You can share it with the world. You can skywrite it in the sky and it will not compromise your security. And so because we have this convention of clearly labeling one of the keys private and one of the keys public, This, all the cool uses of this type of cryptography are called public key cryptography or public key crypto. So imagine you and I both have one of these key pairs and we have swapped public keys with each other. I paid a skywriter to write it in the sky. You sent it to me by carrier pigeon. It doesn't matter how we shared them. We could have broadcasted to the world, right? The point is we have each other's public keys and we each have our own private key that we never, ever, 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 ever share with anyone, ever. 
So if I scramble everything I send you with your public key, and you use my public key to scramble everything you send me, then we are sharing secret information entirely securely in such a way that no eavesdropper could ever unscramble the information because the keys needed for the unscrambling have never left. My private key never had to move anywhere for this to work, and neither did yours. So no secrets had to move anywhere And yet we have exchanged encryption keys and we've done so in such a way that we can speak securely and an eavesdropper can see every single character flowing between us and they're still in the dark. And I can use my same key pair with another 499 people to have 500 separate conversations. And If we each use each other's public key for each of those conversations, and not only am I having 500 secure conversations, but they're all private within themselves, right? What I say to Bob, Alice can't read. What I say to Tom, Charlie can't read, right? It's 500 completely separate, completely secure channels. And like I say, I could have written my public key across the sky. I could have sent every single piece of text we were sending secretly on a postcard. I could have sent it on a giant big jumbo. I could have set it over the public airways. It wouldn't matter. And that is how it is possible for you to use your credit card on the internet. You don't have a secret key that you have exchanged with Amazon or PayPal or whoever. All you've done is swap public keys, and then you have had secure encrypted information. Darn cool. Now, as well as our conversations being secret, there's another feature here. Because the only key that could have... Okay, let me say this a different way. If you receive a message from me, and... I'm going to say this backwards now. Basically, if I scramble something with my private key and you can unscramble it with my public key, then you know it really came from me. Because the only way that my public key could descramble something I sent would be if it was scrambled with my private key. So we can use asymmetric cryptography for both confidentiality, so secrets, sharing them, and authenticity, proving that I really am me. Because you give me something and say, prove you really are Bart, here's a random piece of garbage, give it back to me, encrypted with your private key. And then when I do that, you get it back and you decrypt it with my public key, and you go, oh, yeah really is part because he was able to encrypt using the private key that never left his device. So that is pretty darn cool, right? Confidentiality and authenticity with one piece of math, right? It's difficult math. I'm glad I'm not a math lecturer trying to explain to you how these key pairs work, but they do. Second piece of math then is something called a cryptographic digest. And this is another piece of math that takes an input of any length and it will spit out a fixed-length fingerprint of all the data it sucked in. So 
The simplest use for digests are things like error detection, right? The absolute simplest digest I'm aware of is the last digit on your credit card is calculated from the other 15 digits and it's used to detect errors when we're processing credit cards because if that last digit doesn't meet the math for the digest then they know that one of the previous 15 digits is wrong. There's more advanced versions of digests can be used for error correction codes like ECC2 and RAM and so forth. But for a digest function to be useful cryptographically it can't just be any digest function. It needs to have two very specific properties. It has to be Easy to go from input to the digest, to the fingerprint, but it needs to be effectively impossible to go from a desired fingerprint or digest back to original content. And small changes in input must translate into big changes in the fingerprint. And we have the math to do that. And it is extremely useful for the kind of cryptography we're interested in. Now, you may have come across this something very similar, a cousin of the cryptographic digest functions we're interested in. Um, initially, it wasn't just a cousin. Initially, the actual same digest functions used for cryptography were also used to protect passwords stored by websites. And in that use, they're generally referred to as hashing functions. You probably heard of people talking about, oh, there was a data breach here, but it's okay, the passwords were hashed. Or what you'd like to hear now is that these passwords were hashed and salted or salted and hashed. And the reason these functions have now diverged is because to protect a password, you actually make it even more secure by generating a digest that also uses a private key. And the reason you need to do that is because with a normal digest, if I give it the input monkey, the digest will always be the same. So if a password like 12345 is really popular on a website, if you dump its database of hashed, unsalted passwords, all of the people who have password 123 will have the same hash. So if you crack one of the hashes by just guessing every possible password until you get in, then you can find everyone else on the website with the same password. And that's a problem. So by adding in the salt, you're throwing in an extra piece of randomness. You don't even keep it a secret. You actually put, you know, here's the hash and here's the salt needed to make this hash. But it just means that monkey hashed with 1234 will be different to monkey hashed with 5678. And every user's password is hashed with a different random value. So even if everyone on the website had the password monkey123, everyone's hash would be different. So they're salted hashes. Anyway, that's an aside. If you've heard of hashes and stuff and you think that sounds like these digesty things, that's because it is like these digesty things. Um, I probably should also add an extra bullet point here to say that uh, the same input always has to give you the same output. That's so fundamental I forgot to include it in my show notes. I should update my little essay here to say that there are three things a cryptographic hash must do. Always give the same output for the same input. Must be easy to go from input to digest and effectively impossible to go the other way. And small changes in the input have to, change, have to result in big changes to the fingerprint. So the reason we use these digest functions is to be able to fingerprint an arbitrary piece of data. And the reason we don't want it to be able to go backwards is because we don't want it to be possible to 
forge a fingerprint. So I need to be confident that if a photograph fingerprints to ABC123, that it's not possible for someone to create an arbitrary photograph that they wish to pretend had been created by the New York Times. It shows something that makes the opposite inference to what the real photograph is. But then they take the image they want to share and then they change five or six pixels, which tweaks the resulting fingerprint to match the fingerprint of the original. And those few pixel changes are, they just look like digital noise or whatever. So then they have succeeded in a forgery, right? So the reason you need it to be impossible to go in reverse is because you do not want to make it in any way possible to engineer a hash. And the functions we have don't make that possible. So that's really useful. So how does all of this help us? Well, I've kind of hinted a little bit at how this helps. So this helps with a concept called a digital signature, which is where we combine the two atoms of cryptography we know to make a new molecule of cryptography that's really bloody useful. So if the problem to be solved is having a secret conversation, and we can already do that with asymmetric cryptography, we exchange public keys and away we go. But what if the problem to be solved is to share something publicly and to prove that you own it? So your your aim here isn't to keep a secret, it's to prove a claim of being the source for something. Which is very important if you're going to do some sort of provenance, right? Proof all about proving ownership. So the way you do this is you take your cryptographic digest function, you take the image data and the EXIF data for your photograph, you run those through the digest function to get a fingerprint of your photograph and its metadata, and then you scramble that fingerprint with your private key. If anyone wants to verify your claim to that image, they take the image, so they receive the image, they want to verify, you know, the image says it came from Bart, is it really from Bart? Well, they take the image, they recalculate the fingerprint, they use my public key to unscramble the digest I sent, And they compare it to the digest they calculated with the digest I sent. And if the two of them match, then the digest could only have been scrambled with my private key. Therefore, it is digitally signed. And my identity has now been cryptographically stamped on that piece of media. So you can see how this is an important atom for our um, chain of ownership, etc. here. So digital signatures allow you to tie a piece of content to a person or an organization because they must have had the matching private key to do it. Now, the final piece, the next, I won't say the final piece, but the next very important piece of this whole jigsaw is taking digital signatures a step further. So I've been very loosey-goosey, very intentionally so, about this whole, how exactly Do we share public keys? Because couldn't someone intercept our conversation? So I send you my public key in the clear and your internet service provider intercepts it, changes it to their 
public key and they save it. So then they can insert themselves into the middle of everything we do because I think that I have your public key, but actually have the public key of the ISP. And you think you have my public key, but you actually have the public key of the ISP. And so you use that public key to encrypt and you send to what you think is me, but it's the ISP who then decrypt it with their private key. They have my public key so because they intercepted it. So they then re-encrypt with my public key instead of your public key, and then they send it on to me. And I decrypt it with what I think is your public key, but is actually the public key from the ISP. And now I have you know, decoded the message successfully. And so we both think we're talking to each other because we have a wrong assumption about the public key we have. We have been tricked into having the wrong public key assigned to the correct human being. So you think it's my key. It isn't my key. We now have an adversary in the middle situation. So how do we actually make sure that my public key really is my public key? Well, that's where we take things up a notch with something called a digital certificate. And digital certificates are basically a collection of information that is then fingerprinted with the digest function. And the digest is cryptographically signed by, or cryptographically scrambled, with a private key belonging to a mutually trusted third party. So we have done effort to have a trusted third party and that trusted third party can vouch for our keys and that vouching is represented in something called a digital certificate, which is literally some metadata saying who, so identity information, public key, the result of scrambling all, or the result of digesting all of that, and then a scrambled version of that digest. In fact, you don't even have to save the unscrambled digest. You can recalculate it on the other end. So it's actually said with the scrambled digest, and the digest is scrambled with the private key of the trusted third party. And then you can, at any point in time, using the public key of that trusted third party that you are absolutely certain is their genuine public key, more on that in a moment, then you can verify the identity information that's inside that certificate because you know for a fact. So you only need to have a small, in theory, you just need to have one trusted public key that belongs to your one and only trusted third party. Now, in reality, we have a few hundred trusted trusted parties. They're called certificate authorities. Um, They are part, they use a global standard. In fact, uh, there's a standard file format for public key plus information about the ownership of that key, plus the scrambled version of the digest. It's called an X509 certificate. Um, And the way it works is you take your public key, you take the information about yourself that you want associated with that key, you stick those into an X509 certificate signing request, you send that off to one of these trusted third parties called a certificate authority. They digitally sign your signing request and what you get back is that same X509 information, but now it has been vouched for cryptographically by the trusted third party. And that certificate you can then use to prove to people that the public key that they have really is your public key and now we're away. 
So we call these trusted third parties, these certificate authorities, we call them the trust anchor of all of the cryptography on the internet. And the name we give this whole system, right? So we have the certificate authorities. They actually belong to a global organization that polices the certificate authorities. They set rules for how a certificate authority has to verify the information in their certificates. And they're very strict rules. And they make sure that the certificate authorities follow those rules. They work with the vendors of your computers and your phones and your tablets. And so the public keys of those trusted certificate authorities are actually embedded straight into every single computer and phone we use. And they are the trust anchors that make the padlock on websites possible. And all of this, this whole system, which is a bunch of policies, procedures, file formats, all of it together, and the cryptography underneath, we call all of that the public key infrastructure. And that is how pretty much all e-commerce is possible and so much internet security happens. So when you go to a website and the little padlock says you really are on letstashtalk.ie, what has actually happened is my web server generated a key pair. My web server took the public key, combined it with the identity information to be asserted, which is www.letstashtalk.ie, the domain name of the server, All of that went into an X509 certificate signing request. All of that went off to my certificate authority, Let's Encrypt. Let's Encrypt went through some verification to prove to themselves, following the rules set out in the Global Organization of Certificate Authorities, to prove that I really am the owner of letsastalk.ie. And then when Let's Encrypt had done their verification work, they digitally signed my signing request and gave me back a certificate, which I installed in my web server. And every time you visit letstashtalk.ie, you get a scrambled version of the web page, which was scrambled with my private key and a copy of my certificate. Your browser can verify the certificate because it has the public keys for the certificate authorities. And then using the public key verified by the certificate authorities that is embedded in my certificate that I gave to you, you can unscramble the website I gave to you. And that is how the padlock works. So X509 certs are spectacularly broad in what they can do because they have lots of different possible identity assertions that can go. So on a website, I am asserting the domain name. So this certificate belongs to this domain name. Email encryption can also be done with X509 certs. And then you're not associating a domain name, you're associating an email address with a public key. And Again, the certificate authority has to verify that you really are in possession of that email address before it will associate your public key with that email address in a certificate. Um, you know, you can also get a certificate for an organization or a person. So you can get a digital identity that is a public key and your name address, uh, maybe the, your company registration number if you're a company and so forth. All of that identity information about you, the person, or your organization. All of that goes into the X509 signing request and all of that then is cryptographically verified. So you can use these certificates to prove you are a specific person or organization because it ties the public key matching the private key to that person or organization. So that is why certificates and certificate authorities and the whole public key infrastructure are so absolutely vital. So all of that is pure math. Well, it's applied math. Um, so I said there were three atoms that were going to be put together here. 
So the third atom then is we need to protect private keys. All of this completely rests on the assumption that when I chose one of the two keys in my key pair to be private, that I would never, ever, 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 ever share that in any way whatsoever. And on a web server, that's not too difficult to do because a web server is in a data center. There's literally physical security. Your web server should have all sorts of digital security on it as well. So it's probably pretty safe. And every now and then a website gets hacked and a certificate has to be revoked and a new certificate issued. It's not the end of the world. But if we're going to do this from Shutterpress all the way to screen view, that means that we need to have private keys with us in the big, bad, scary real world, not in the safety of a data center with barbed wire and God knows what around it, but in war zones, in very dangerous places, in places with repressive governments, places with all sorts of people with all sorts of intentions to forge images. So how do we protect private keys that have to be in danger if they're going to be inside our cameras? And the solution to that has been in our iPhones, not just our iPhones, it's been in our phones in general. It did start on the iPhone, but it's been on our phones in general for quite some time. And it's been in our laptops and our desktops for even longer. So Apple's brand name for the solution here is the Secure Enclave. And if you're coming at it in PC land um, on your computers and stuff, it's called a Trusted Platform Module or a TPM. and They are hardware chips that sit on your motherboard. And these chips are entirely separate from the rest of your motherboard. And they run their own little operating system. And their physical wires between them and the motherboard can only pass certain pieces of information physically. So there are physical pathways to tell a TPM, make a new key pair. And once it has done that, there is a physical pathway to say to the TPM, give me the public key. There's also a physical pathway to send the TPM a bunch of unscrambled data and tell the TPM, scramble this data. And then there's another pathway for the TPM to give the scrambled data back. What there absolutely positively is not is a physical path for the private key to leave the TPM. There is no physical way. So no software bug can get around a lack of a physical connection between the circuitry that stores the private key and the outside of the TPM. Literally, the only way to get the private key out of a TPM is to use a very, very finely tuned laser to etch away the physical surface of the physical chip and to start paring back the layers to try find the little pieces of silicon where the ones and zeros are genuinely stored and then to use something like an electron microscope to read that data straight from the chip and to do all of that without accidentally damaging the data in some way. It's not impossible. But it's darn close. Right, so these these chips are what make the right. You may have wondered, why can't the FBI decrypt an iPhone with a password on it? That's because the private key needed to decrypt the hard disk, it's not a hard disk, but to decrypt the data in a phone, is stored in the secure enclave, i.e. in a trusted platform module. And not even the FBI 
can get the private key out. So we just take something we have on our laptops and in our phones and we shove it in our cameras. Hey presto, we now have the ability to digitally sign the raw image as it's read from the camera sensor. We now have all the pieces needed to put this together, right? At a technological level, we have our three pieces. We can use digital signatures to connect data and metadata to public keys. We can use digital certificates to connect those public keys to people, organizations, and companies. And we can use trusted platform modules to protect the private keys we need to embed in our cameras. All, an easy word to say, but it's a lot to it. All we need is a standardized system to tie these things together and buy in from all the relevant parties. All we need is someone to decide on the formats and everyone to agree to do it. Now, this is where we switch into good news mode very, very much because the bull got rolling on this twice. So there was an Adobe-led effort and a BBC-led effort. And a few years ago, they came together to form a unified effort, which they have dubbed the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity, or the C2PA. And uh, the C2PA has grown, and it has a very impressive list of members. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but they include a lot of different stakeholders. Camera manufacturers like Canon, Nikon, Leica, and Sony. Leica actually have a camera you can buy today that digitally signs its images using private keys in TPMs. Software companies like Adobe are leading the way here. Not surprising they were one of the two kickoff people. Media organizations like the BBC and the New York Times are on board with this. We have cloud service providers to actually provide a back end to media companies to do all of this at scale have bought into this. So AWS, Microsoft and Google are all members of the C2PA. Certificate authorities are on board. They're going to have to be certifying the identities here. So DigiCert is a member of the C2PA. And even chip makers are going to have to build these TPMs and things. Even they're on board. So Intel and ARM are members of the C2PA. So this is a, there's a lot of buy-in from a lot of industries. We're also quite far along in the process because the standard defining all the different data structures and so forth, all the different you know, rules for constructing a digital provenance fact file, those have all been described. They're available as an open format and it's called content credentials. So you can use the content credentials format to embed providence information straight into media files. And it's not just photos. As it stands, content credentials are compatible with photos, videos, and audio files. That's, that's media. But also far, a lot, far enough along that you can genuinely use photo content credentials today. Leica will sell you a camera that supports content credentials. Any certificate authority will give you an X509 cert that says you are who you are and tie your public key to that identity. Adobe's entire suite of photo editing software is ready to rock and roll. It fully supports content credentials. 
And there's even an official validation site that's available for free where you can drag and drop any image onto this website and it will tell you, A, if the image has a content credential embedded in it. If it does, it will tell you whether or not that that, that, um, credential is valid. In other words, if the cryptography stacks up, if it hasn't been tampered with. And it will graphically show you the full chain of ownership, the full provenance of the image in a very pretty graphical user interface. So you can see, ah, okay, it was shot by this photographer on this date in this place. It was then sent to their publishing house who wrote the following caption, the following keywords. They digitally signed the whole kit and caboodle to tie it to them. Then it was sent to a photo editor who cropped it a bit, tweaked with the levels, signed it again, saying that it really was a New York Times photographer or whatever who did the edits. And then the thing was published on a website and it hasn't been messed with since. It's amazing. So that is today you can do this. It's a little bit clunky to do because you need to drag and drop onto a website, but it's there today. So how does it all work? Well, you start off by embedding the provenance information in the media file metadata, so EXIFs for photographs, in a structure that the standard calls a manifest. So a content credential manifest contains chains that are connected together to give you an order of things. So the manifest has chains of claims and assertions that describe the creation of the media, every edit that got applied after it was created, and the chain starts with assertions about how the media was created and and then an ownership claim. Those two things, so the how and the who, are digitally signed by the original creator or their organisation, and that's the start of the manifest. And then from that point on, every time an image is edited, you update the manifest by adding in fresh claims and assertions and then digitally signing those. And you include in your fresh assertions a digital signature of the previous assertions in the chain. And so that connects cryptographically every step of the process. And so you end up with a chain. So what that really means is that every when you look inside a manifest, At every point in the chain, you're going to have a fingerprint, a digest of the media itself, how it was at that point in its history. Uh, You can tell, or you will be given some sort of a preview. So for a photograph, that means a thumbnail. So there'll be a thumbnail of how the photo looked as it came out of the camera. There'll be a thumbnail after the editor tweaked the levels. There'll be a thumbnail after it was cropped, right? There will be a collection of assertions describing the changes that were made. And there's going to be an authorship claim. So someone cropped it. Who cropped it? Oh, they cropped it. And as I say, the digest of the previous manifest entry is added into the next manifest entry to give you this chain that will help you to put things in order in a provable way and to detect any sort of changes that happen undocumented between the links in the chain. So. I'm going to describe to you a real-world scenario that could be happening right now this second. Right, I'm not saying it is, but it absolutely positively could be. So, there could be a New York Times photographer in Ukraine taking images of the war with their Leica camera. As they shoot the image, the EXIF data and the raw image are being digitally signed by their Leica camera. They upload their photographs to their editor at the New York Times headquarters, 
And the editor adds in the photo captions. They title the pictures, throw in some keywords, put in some copyright information, and then they digitally sign all of that with the New York Times' private key, which means that we now have a content credential at the start of the manifest that tells us that the image was shot by a specific photographer with a specific camera, a specific geolocated place with specific EXIF data, and the New York Times are vouching for this fact, and the New York Times have captioned the image, and the New York Times have titled the image, and the New York Times have keyboarded the image, and the New York Times say they own the image. All of that is cryptographically provably embedded right into the image file. The image then heads off to a picture editor and uh, it's going to be used as a story, but it was shot in landscape. They needed a portrait. Levels aren't quite right. So the editor opens up Photoshop. They do a little curves adjustment and they might tweak the color balance a bit because it's a little on the red side and they give it a crop to put it in the right aspect ratio. And when they hit save in Photoshop, Photoshop, because it is um, content credentials aware, will create, will add into the, a new entry into the manifest with assertions describing every single edit. They took the levels adjustment or they took the curves adjustment and they moved this bit here and that bit there and they took the crop tool and they cropped here to here and they took the white balance and they warmed it up by 24 degrees, right? Details of every edit. A new, a new thumbnail is, is made, a new digital digest is made, a new thumbprint, and authorship information is added, and then the whole kit and caboodle gets digitally signed again with the New York Times private key. So we now have a manifest that describes how the New York Times photographer shot the image and how the New York Times edited the image. And then the image is used in the story, shared on social media, and... I see it and I go, jeez, I wonder, is that image real? I wonder, is it really that bad in Ukraine? I drag and drop the image onto the Content Credentials Checker website and it comes back with a clean bill of health saying, yep, this is indeed, this has Providence information. Here it is, shot by New York Times photographer, edited by the New York Times and hasn't been messed with since. Later that day, some unscrupulous so-and-so, somewhere in a basement in the Kremlin, sees the image and went, "Eh, if we, you know, do a little bit of, you know, AI fill and we change this from someone in a Ukrainian uniform to, sorry, from someone in a Russian uniform to someone in a Ukrainian uniform, we make it look like the Ukrainians are the baddies, and we re-upload the image to social media. I see the image again and go, ah, a bit suspicious. I don't think the Ukrainians do that kind of thing. I drag and drop the image onto the free verifier and now it says, oh, yeah, there is a content credential in this image because it was edited by an editor that isn't aware of content credentials. But it doesn't tally anymore. The fingerprint of the image you're looking at and the fingerprint vouched for by the content credential do not match anymore. I can tell you that this image started life as a New York Times image, and when it left the New York Times, it had this little thumbnail you can look at, and it had all of these edits applied to it. And it had this original caption, it had this original title, and these original keywords. And then you look at what you have now, and you go, holy moly, they've changed the uniform, and uh, they've completely changed the caption. This is a complete forgery, and I have cryptographically proven that it's a complete forgery. And everything I've just described to you here could be happening right now today. Every piece in that tool chain is already in place. 
So the big pain point is for me, the end user who had to go and drag and drop it onto the verifier tool, right? The stuff to make things work for the New York Times is already in place. There, there's even cloud services offered by, there, there's, um, there's even video-based ones, actually, um, so that local governments can uh, verify their videos of their council meetings and stuff. That's already in place as a full cloud service back-ended into Microsoft Azure. So you can already do this for real. And the software to verify, the, to create, to modify, to verify these content credentials, all of that has been released as open source, which means it's all available for developers to bake into their own apps. So the really, the pain point is that the apps I use every day don't have native support baked right in. So that's the final piece we're missing. And really, the places we need it to happen are our browsers. So we should be able to right-click on an image in our browser and have it tell us whether or not it contains a content credential. If it does contain a content credential, whether it validates, and if it does or doesn't validate, it should show us the manifest in a nice graphical way. And everything needed to add that to the browser is there, all available as open source. It's just the browser manufacturers have to do it. They have to add the user interface. Similarly, I think every social media app needs to do this, and video apps like YouTube and stuff probably need to do this too. Um, I know, as I said, the pieces are in place, there is momentum. So that is, that is where the work still remains to be done. And I would say we have a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here because the media creators aren't all that bothered about embedding content creators because there's no app supporting it. And the apps don't seem all that bothered to support it because there's not that many pieces of media with content credentials. Now, because we're all terrified of AI, this actually just might happen because everyone might just be scared enough to do it all at once and the chicken and egg may just both come out together and we may be all good here. I don't know, but that is, fingers crossed, what's going to happen. Anyway, some final thoughts on all of this. So it isn't only about trust in media, right? It's also a way of proving ownership. If I... I'm a digital creator who makes these amazing creations purely from Photoshop. I can use content credentials to say, I made this from scratch. This date, this time, I am me. This is my piece of amazing art. I'm releasing it under the Creative Commons license. And that's now baked into the image in a cryptographically provable way, which is useful too. Um, Adobe are also doing something cool. Right now, today, they are in the process of adding AI tools into their photography suite. And they already have support for content credentials in their entire suite. So what they have done is, as they have been adding AI capabilities, they have been making it so that those AI capabilities always embed what it is they have done, in fact, the fact that they have been using a photograph, into a manifest in the images. So anytime an Adobe AI tool is used, there's a manifest entry added to say that an AI tool was used. Now, you can strip the manifest out, but you can't fake the manifest. So if this thing takes off, we're going to have four types of images on the internet. Images with a valid content credential that lets us know the image's Provenance. We then make a trust decision based on what provenance, on who the provenance shows is making the claims. We're going to have images with content credentials that are explicitly declared as being AI generated, not real, not human created. 
And we're going to have images that we know have been manipulated because they have a content credential that doesn't validate anymore. And then we're going to have images that we don't know anything about. They don't have a content credential, so it is neither verified nor unverified. And hopefully more and more images fall into category one and two over time, which means that it's more and more likely that whenever someone mucks things up, they'll fall into category three. And if this goes well enough, then having a news site use an image without a content credential will just simply become unacceptable. And having social media share memes that do not have content credentials will just become, I'm not going to believe that, it doesn't have a content credential. So all of this, once we get by and this could be a really cool future. But again, I want to underline over and over and over again, none of this prevents fraud. What it does is it adds transparency. It ties human beings to the claims in the manifest. And so you then decide whether you trust the claims based on the people and organizations the manifest proves are making that claim. So the manifest isn't making claims about truthfulness, they're making claims about authorship, provable claims about authorship. And so you as the human being need to judge the media you're looking at based on the authorship that you now have confidence in. Okay, final thought. This is very much still a work in progress. But the foundations are a lot more in place than I realised they were, which is darn cool. And there's even enough of the superstructure built already that if you're an early adopter, you can get stuck in today. You could be doing this today. And if the momentum keeps going in the way it has been, this actually could become reality the next few years. Fingers crossed, touch wood, all of those things. Right. I am going to draw a line under it there. Um, you can find an essay version of this entire conversation at letstalk.ie, where you will find buttons to support the show. I thank each and every person who has ever or will ever or does now support the show in any way, shape, size or form. You can make a monthly pledge on Patreon. Um, Basically, if you think my work is worth $2 a month, pledge me $2 a month on Patreon. You can make one-off donations on PayPal and simply reviewing the show on any podcatcher or sharing links to the show on social media. All of that greatly helps the show to spread. And the more people listen, the more people will push the more financial support buttons. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who does. In case you hadn't noticed, there are no ads because... Thanks to the amazingness of all of you folk out there, this is a 100% listener-supported show. Right, I've been your host, Bart Bouchard. You can find me at bartb.ie. Till next time, happy snapping. Happy snapping.